My name is Sophia Osborne, and you're listening to the Root and STEM podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. Today, I want to tell you about an event that happened on Saturna Island back in May. It was a rainy day and 55 residents of this beautiful island off the coast of British Columbia took to the intertidal zone to look for sea stars. With their rulers and guidebooks in hand, they took careful observations of any sea stars they saw, noting their color, size, species, and more. Their data will be used to help researchers protect these iconic marine species and to potentially determine the cause of the mysterious sea star wasting syndrome that has decimated populations up and down the west coast of North America. This was the second annual Sea Star BioBlitz on Saturna. It's a community science event organized by marine biology enthusiast and retired teacher Robin Quaintance, who has a home on Saturna's waterfront and kayaks along the intertidal zone almost every day. Robin was inspired to start the count when she saw the effects of wasting syndrome firsthand. It was really sad and and kind of ugly because they were like melting away and hard for me to look you know but you could see you know some of them would lose one or two of their legs and you could just see that they were wasting away and you know I kayak a lot every time you go back it's it's different because they they move as well and so I didn't always see the same ones but I saw them diseased you know, we had so many, we had so many that they were on top of each other, but now there's not. And we never had a count before. It's kind of like you don't think it's ever going to happen, you know? And so we've been starting to count. Last year was our first year and we didn't at all get all the waterfront covered, but we got a fair bit and we counted 10,000 last year. And now I don't have the figures yet for this year. We think there'll probably be more because some areas had none. And like, we, we didn't know this. And the areas that had super lot, we had to divide the areas into three or four so that we could, you know, count more accurately. So I think we're going to get a bigger count this year. I hope so. So last year we asked everybody to look for unhealthy ones and we had less than 1% last year of unhealthy ones. And so that's good that we're recovering. I spoke with Robin about her experience organizing the Sea Star Count on Saturna. Well, I I really didn't know what I was doing. I guess a lot of people say that, but I knew I needed zones, like certain zones of where I was going to put people. So I worked with a couple of people saying, okay, well, you know, where do you think we should have people? And so we identified zones first. And that was good for this year too, because we knew that last year, some people only saw two sea stars in that zone. So this year we didn't have anybody in those zones. We focused on other zones. So I first developed the zones and then I advertised and then I applied for money from Parks and Rec who gave us money because I knew that we had to have a celebration. We, we had to have a celebration. A celebration is always food. I mean, you know, it is, I, I like to have food. So I got that going. So we'd have food. Again, I didn't know how many people I was going to get. I said, let's just go for 50. And then, and we had 50 or 48 or something last year. This year, I said, we're going to go for 55. And we had 55 people. So it was great. You know, you never know. It's the last minute people say they're going to do it. 
and we had everybody file in six feet apart and I had it all cornered off for the elementary kids and the high school kids because that's another thing I wanted them involved because you know this is citizen science so I wanted the, the elementary student kids uh, involved and the high school seek kids involved so I was gonna say I, was, I tried to get a speaker last year and they canceled the last minute I did get one for this year. So um, besides everybody eating and, and I got the food there and we had a little celebration, I asked for stories from people and, you know, contributed my own and it was a good little celebration. And this year we had a great person. His name was Philip Lambert and he he's the BC museum in Victoria. He's their person. He's the echoderm specialist. So he's a sea star specialist. So yeah, it's a big job to organize it. And, and we had to put them in categories, like how big they are. So from like zero to two inches and from two to three and a half inches. And so we wanted them to measure the radius, which is the center of the sea star out to the longest leg. And we didn't want them to straighten the legs or anything. We just wanted them to gauge, okay, is that two inches? Is that three, you know, is that four inches? While sea star wasting syndrome is not a new disease, this wave has been startlingly devastating, causing what scientists say is the largest disease epidemic ever observed in wild marine animals. Melissa Miner, a researcher at UC Santa Cruz, helps monitor sea stars with the multi-agency Rocky Intertidal Network. We're basically a consortium of a bunch of different organizations who are all working together using the same methods for monitoring Rocky Intertidal communities all up and down the West Coast. So we have sites that range from Mexico all the way up to Alaska. So we have a number of different kind of focal organisms, so invertebrates and seaweeds that we target with our monitoring. But yeah, sea stars are one of the species that, that we're monitoring anyway. And one of our partner organizations, Olympic National Park, they actually started to see signs of sea stars with what looked like wasting disease in early June of 2013. And then the great thing about having this network is that they communicated that with all these other groups working up and down the coast. And so we all started looking for it. And it was really only a matter of months before we were seeing it most places up and down the coast. So it was it was a good example of how a network like that can, can really be beneficial to capturing a disease event. I asked Melissa to tell me more about sea star wasting syndrome and what causes it. We don't know what it is. We, we don't know the cause. There's, there's been some work that has had some hypotheses about what the cause might be, but we definitely don't, don't have anything that explains what we're seeing on a West Coast wide basis. It looks like when you see it in, in most species of sea stars, and you know, there's a lot of different species of sea stars, and they express the disease in, in slightly different ways. But most of them will develop lesions, so kind of white patches where the tissue is soft and starts to degrade. And then that can spread to kind of more general tissue degradation. Oftentimes they'll drop arms. And it seems like maybe this is a 
a way of trying to rid themselves of the disease because we do see animals that that have dropped arms and the rest of the sea star is healthy and they actually can recover from the disease. But it seems to progress at different speeds through different through the various species as well, like um, the sunflower star, Pycnopodia, that one. Seems like once it gets sick, it's often just a matter of days before they die. Other species seem like maybe they can, they have a little bit more resistance to the disease. So it's hard to say too much without knowing what the cause is, but, but that's what we've seen in the field. I also wanted to know more about the effects of sea star wasting syndrome and this loss in sea star populations on the greater ecosystem. Yeah. So, I mean, again, there are a lot of different species of sea stars. And so they all have different roles, different important roles in their various communities. The ones that get the most attention are the ones that are uh, what we call keystone predators. So Pisosterocratius, the ochre star, it, it was the original keystone predator. So that hypothesis was developed right here in Washington by Bob Payne at University of Washington. He was working out on Tatoosh Island on the outer coast of Washington and did this experiment where he removed ochre stars from some areas and left them in other areas and found that by removing those sea stars, the community changed a a fair bit. And that's because they are these major predators. They eat a lot of different things, but one of their favorite foods is mussels. And mussels can be, they can be dominant space occupiers in the rocky inner tidal. So if you, if you go out to a rocky inner tidal bench, you'll see that there are kind of these zones of species and mussels are really good at, at dominating kind of the mid zone. And so where there were sea stars present, where there were ochre stars present, they would eat these mussels and then free up space for other things to, to settle in. The other species that's, that's a really um, important keystone predator is the sunflower star, Pycnopodia. And that's also one of the species that was most heavily impacted by sea star wasting disease. So that's one that we've seen repercussions, particularly in kelp forest communities, where urchins, both survivorship rates and also their behavior seems to be affected by a decline or loss of of sunflower stars. And because urgency kelp, then, you know, in many places, there seems to be a, a link between this both change in behavior, so urchins are out foraging more, and also higher survivorship. So, so we, it seems like we've the kelp forests have been negatively impacted by the loss of, of sunflower stars. I asked Melissa to tell me how citizen science factors into the intertidal network. The citizen science component is kind of a separate. It's it's definitely related, but separate to the the rest of the marine network. So. When we started to see the disease kind of ramp up, we were getting a lot of requests and concern from the general public and a lot of people reaching out wondering how they could help. And we realized that, you know, a lot of the things that we study and and the methods that we use, they they take a fair bit of training, but sea stars, especially in the, the intertidal, because there aren't a whole lot of species, you know, not nearly as many as you find in the subtitle zone, 
we realized that we could train people to identify sea stars and use the same methods that we use to track those, those long-term trends in sea star populations. So by getting help from, from citizen science groups and sometimes just individuals would take on this, this monitoring of sea star populations at, you know, maybe a, a spot that was right next to where they lived or um, an area of the coast where they, they went to frequently anyway, we were able to, to train people to, to collect sea star data in the same way that we do. So that's sort of one piece of it is kind of expanding the sites where we're collecting long-term population and size structure data for ochre stars. And then the other piece is kind of a, a simpler way to contribute. So we have what we call our observation data. And that's basically just anybody can go out anywhere and they can observe either sick or healthy or, you know, a combination of healthy and sick sea star species. And then just report that using a form that we have on our website. And we use those data. We, we put them on what we call our sea star tracking map. And that helps to alert researchers where people are seeing the disease. So it's, you know, it, it, it hit really hard in late 2013 and kind of through 2014. And then it kind of subsided. It never went away entirely, but it, it seemed like it was kind of persisting at a low level in most areas. But we have seen it kind of crop up in various spots. And so by having all these eyes looking, you know, in, in all along the West Coast and then reporting it to this, this website and also providing that information as a map to anybody who's interested that has helped us to better track the disease. And those data have been used by lots of different researchers and students, you know, using the data for their projects and, and stuff like that. But they've been great for looking for correlations. So things like sea surface temperature, distance to the nearest like large population center, People have looked at shipping traffic, you know, all these different factors that people thought might be contributing to sea star wasting disease. And that has helped us to kind of rule out a, a bunch of different things, I guess. There's nothing that's correlated nicely with the, the patterns that we've seen. But I think, you know, as we continue to collect these, these observations, hopefully that will help inform researchers who are looking at, at potential causes of disease. Data from the first Saturnus sea star count was compiled by local high school students and sent to Marine. They plan to do the same with this year's data. The Sikh students, high school students here, really wanted to be involved and wanted to make it like information that we could utilize. And so I had a form already made, <laughs> sent it out, and then we decided the Sikh students said, well, we want to make this scientifically uh, correct. So we, then we put out another form that was what Santa Cruz wanted. Of course, they wanted to know how many were wasted or, you know, how many were diseased and, and different things like that. So last year we did put our, gave our information to them and they were pleased because not everybody's doing that here, you know, on these islands or anywhere up here. So, and I just think it's good information to do this. 
I asked Robin why she's so passionate about citizen science. I don't think that we can, as a society, can properly fund as many scientists as we need because there's so much going on. And I really think it's important for us as just regular citizens that don't have an education, but we're trying to help get the information out there of how many sea stars we have. I also belong to the bird count in December, which is citizen science as well. I'm also, I go out on my kayak and we do a bull kelp thing every year in August. Everybody in the area does on the sort of the same day or within the same week, it has to be a certain tide. And we count bull kelp because that's also really, really important for our environment. So citizen science is really important because all of us people who are retired and still believe in the system and, and want to make a difference, that's what we do, I think, anyway. It's so surprising to me, the people who came up to me and said, oh, I really enjoyed that. You know, they really enjoyed getting out there and counting sea stars. You know, who would have known? <laughs> Who wanted to do that? So, I mean, just because I love sea stars doesn't mean that other people really want to get out there and count. For others who are interested in engaging with citizen science, Robin says to do it. Sometimes I amaze myself because I had this dream of, of doing a count just to see where we're at and see how many purples, how many oranges, all that sort of stuff. Just curious, curious. And I put it together and it came off and people were happy to do it. And, you know, the celebration the other day was fun and, you know, food and this great speaker. And I mean, how wonderful is that? You know, that's, that's worth everything because, you know, you have this idea and then it just blooms and, you know, you're happily. And, you know, I've had ideas that haven't, (laughs) you know, you put all the energy in and they flop, but that's how you learn, I guess you just go forward. And so um, I think that anybody should just go for it. 